Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour Called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is author Christopher Kolakowski. Chris, in addition to being a three-time author, is also the director of the Wisconsin Veterans Museum in Madison, Wisconsin. During his lifetime, he also served brilliantly at other distinguished historical museums, such as the Douglas MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia, and the General George Patton Museum and Center for Leadership at Fort Knox, Kentucky. This week marks the 160th anniversary of the Seven Days Battles, which took place during the Civil War from June 25, 1862 to July 1, 1862, between Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and General George McClellan's Army of the Potomac. What was at stake was the safety of the Confederate capital located in Richmond, Virginia. Chris Kolakowski is eminently qualified to discuss the significance of the Seven Days Battles because in 2016, he released the book, The Virginia Campaigns, March to August 1862, which discusses the Seven Days Battles in excellent detail. Chris, welcome back to the show. It's an honor to have you back again. Uh, it's great to be back. Yes. I, I like to kick off the show by asking this. Would you please briefly set the stage for our listeners about what led to the Seven Days Battles in late June 1862, and how close was the Union Army to Richmond, Virginia at that period of time? So the Seven Days Battles, um, which you've already given the dates for, um, is the culmination of General McClellan's campaign up the Virginia Peninsula to try and take Richmond. This is the first of the great on-to-Richmond campaigns since the campaign that, start, that led to the first Battle of Manassas or Bull Run last uh, the previous year. Um, McClellan had moved most of the Army of the Potomac, which was the largest army ever fielded in American history up to that time, uh, to Fort Monroe by sea, and then after a short siege at Yorktown had forced the Confederates to retreat up the peninsula, and then outside of Richmond on the last day of May in 1862 had been attacked by the Confederates, on, who at the time were under Joseph Johnston and uh, fought, Federals fought into a standstill, but it was enough to make McClellan, who consistently overestimated the amount of troops he was facing, um, pause, regroup, and start on uh, preparing a siege for the Confederate capital. Johnston is wounded in the battle. Robert E. Lee takes command of the Army of Northern Virginia on, on July or June 2nd. Um, and the armies, after about a three-week or so period of stasis, um, Lee realizes, I, I can't, I, I shouldn't surrender the initiative. Um, reconnaissance, Confederate reconnaissance determines the federal position has some weaknesses to it. And Lee realizes, you know, in the shadow of the Capitol, um, it's either stay here and be beaten or attack and try and drive the federals away. And so uh, he'll open the what will become the Seven Days Battles, as you mentioned, on June 25th, 1862. So that's how we get here. And again, to answer your other question real quick, it was uh, Union Army was within six miles of Richmond. They could hear the church bells on Sunday. Wow. So you said Lee was able to determine weaknesses in the Union position. Now, this, this per, does this pertain to Jeb Stewart's famed ride around McClellan's army? I mean, was that was that the re end result where he got that intelligence about their Union weaknesses? Is that the tie-in? That's a very big part of it, yes. Uh, Jeb Stewart in mid-June, about 10 days after Lee became Army commander, literally rode a complete circuit around the Union army, um, brought back incredible intelligence, created a lot of disruption in the Union rear, 
um, actually outduels his father-in-law, who's commanding the cavalry, chasing him, um, and gets back and reports to General Lee with pretty good intelligence of, of where the Federals are, what's going on, and you know helps Lee understand what the potential opportunities are. Now, it's interesting. He, McClellan landed on the peninsula in March. I believe it was March, right? Correct, 1862. And it took him three whole months just to reach the outskirts of Richmond. What is your, what, when you were doing your research for your book, what, was your, what is your evaluation of George McClellan? And why was he so hesitant and reluctant to be aggressive? I mean, in terms of moving his corps, his units, I mean, was he hands-on or was he more of a delegator? I mean, describe his... Describe him. How much, how much time do we have? <laughs> McClellan, I, I, will, I will be brief. Um, I, will, I will say a couple of things. George McClellan is, for the first probably year and a half, two years of the Civil War, George McClellan is, is the dominant military figure on the Union side. Yeah. Um, he's a very interesting personality, um, very accomplished individual, um, great record at West Point, one of the stars of the pre-war U.S. Army had gone to observe the, uh, and this is important, he was part of the three-man commission to go observe and report on the Crimean War. Mm. And so he looked He looked at the uh, uh, defenses of Sevastopol. He actually looked at cavalry operations, which included the uh, charge of the Light Brigade. He wrote a report on that. So, you know, educated officer, um, personally very magnetic, also had quite an ego. Um, one of the things that I say when I do formal presentations on McClellan is I say to quote the man's private letters to his wife and some of his official correspondence is to indict him. Um, <laughs> he, could be, he could be his own worst enemy. And he can, he, he can, he's a great organizer, a great trainer, but you know how there are times where you get people that are real good number twos, real good at, at you know, organizing and keep, keeping the trains running on time, keeping the bills paid, the lights on, but in terms of deciding what and where to fight um, you know, or what to do with an organization, you know, they lack something. That's, that's, in a nutshell, what McClellan is. I also think there's two other factors that need to be considered about George McClellan. The first one is, is the man has never really failed at anything he's done in his life before. Mm. And now he's commanding the largest army in the history of the United States and the greatest campaign to date in the history of the United States. Mm. And he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to blow it. And so he's, he's tight. The other thing is, and this is something that a close reading of his letters um, really bore out. He writes, to his wife during this campaign, he says, the great problem I have is want of good staff officers. Mm. Now think about this for a minute. First of all, who appointed all the staff officers in the Army of the Potomac? It's George McClellan. <laughs> so he's not, he's not picking good people. And the second thing is, is because he feels he doesn't have a, a good staff officers, he takes on so much for himself and he becomes a micromanager and gets immersed in detail. So he loses the big picture, but also during mo key moments like this, like actually the seven days and during uh, even Fair Oaks, his health breaks and he is physically and mentally exhausted. And it doesn't excuse, doesn't excuse his performance, but those are things that need to be remembered um, and, you know, are on the debit side of the ledger for him as a leader, not being able to manage himself and the people around him very well. 
Now you mentioned his magnetism. Was that the sort? Is that the key reason why his soldiers absolutely loved and devo were devoted to him? Do you think that magnetism was the key to their love and devotion for him? I, I think that's a big part of it. McClellan, personally magnetic, he, he was out among the troops, a visible presence. Um, he also instilled an ethos among the leadership of the Army of the Potomac that will last basically through the war mm. of visible leadership. And, you know, you know they, the, the Western armies were far more informal in terms of uniforms. They didn't do the parades. They didn't do the, the cheering that you hear goes on in the Army of the Potomac, particularly during winter quarters periods as the war goes along. All that comes from McClellan. And so he's basically instilling this look like soldiers, act like soldiers, take pride in yourself and, and you know, some opportunities to show off and, and you know, show yourself off. And if, if you take pride in that, then you will fight. You will fight well. When, when, uh, I, both, when both of us have studied the seven days battles because we're both military history buffs, what I always found striking is when the Confederates were launching their attacks during those seven days, there were so many lost opportunities to make great breakthroughs against the Union forces. Based on your research, what is your analysis? Why was it that the, 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 there were several Confederate attacks that were never fully and properly exploited? What, what went wrong, uh, Chris, in your opinion? Ooh, um, this is this is another. One. I've done staff rides of the Seven Days, and we explore this in detail. Um, essentially, there there are a couple things that happen. Um, organization alone doesn't ensure victory, but or disorganization can sure prevent it. And this is one of those things where it disorganization prevents Confederate the full Confederate uh, power being used in several battles. Um, first thing to point out is Robert E. Lee is the first American to ever command multiple armies on a field of battle. Mm -hmm. Stonewall Jackson's wing, which is coming down from the north while Lee's, the rest of Lee's army in Northern Virginia attacks from the, from the west. Um, Stonewall Jackson's command is actually still known as the Army of the Valley. Mm -hmm. So he's, even though Lee is the senior officer, Jackson has a measure of independence as the Army of the Valley. In fact, it won't lose that designation until August of 1862. Mm -hmm. So... That's the first thing that needs to be mentioned. And, you, and and when you study Lee and Jackson during those battles, when you realize Jackson commands a force known as an army and Lee's dealing to a certain extent with an equal, that makes a difference. And Lee gives him a very long leash. Um, and, quite, and, and, it's, and Lee's also learning. Lee has never maneuvered this many people on the battlefield. You know, you're talking 85,000 Confederates on, you know, spread over miles and miles of front. Um, Lee's never maneuvered, you know, no American has ever commanded, except for McClellan, has commanded that many men in an active campaign to date. And then the other thing is the personalities of some of the commanders um, that Lee's dealing with. He's got five uh, independent commanders that he's dealing with, um, trying to coordinate them all. Um, you know, even today with radios and cell phones, it would be difficult to maneuver that number of people over the kind of front that Lee was maneuvering over. And of course, they didn't have any of that uh, during the Civil War. So those, those in, in a brief nutshell, are, you know, why Lee can't, can't get his army coordinated and moving the way he will in later campaigns, and certainly the way he wants to in front of Richmond. Some historians have suggested that one of Lee's attacks, I believe it was the sixth day, I mean, the, the Battle of Glendale or AKA Fraser's Farm, 
they postulate that if it had really succeeded as Lee originally planned it, it could have annihilated the, the Union Army and altered the course of the war. Wait, when you were doing your research, did you come to that same conclusion? I mean, was there a real grand lost opportunity on the sixth day of the Seven Days Battles at Fraser's Farm in Glendale? Which is 160 years ago today, actually. Yeah. Um, and the answer, I would agree. I would agree. The best chance Lee has to seriously injure the Army of the Potomac is June 30th, when the trains are, are backed up trying to get to the river and the Army has to stop around the Glendale crossroads. And Lee, for the first time, is able to concentrate four-fifths of his force, including Jackson coming from the north, in a series of attacks against the Federals. Again, the communication issues, coordination issues, um, there's also a certain amount of exhaustion on the part of the Confederate leaders and troops. Um, they are the, the opportunities missed. It's close. It's very close. Yeah. The Federals actually, it's one. Federals put up quite a great stance at Glendale and survived the day is quite an achievement. But I, I would have to agree with that assessment. There was a real missed opportunity there at, at Glendale for the Confederates. Throughout the seven days battles, this is the most amazing thing, considering his, his reputation. There were several times Stonewall Jackson was dilatory in being able to, you know, get his core, you know, his, his Army of the Valley going, you know, getting all his units into, you know, sometimes there was hesitation in his attacks. What is what is your analysis? What was it that, why was it he was so dilatory in certain in key instances during the Seven Days Battles? You know, we talked about McClellan's health breaking down and exhaustion. Stonewall Jackson suffers from the same affliction during the seven days. Uh, Bob Crick, uh, years ago, wrote an essay in a collection of essays called, uh, called The Richmond Campaign. And his essay was called Sleepless in the Saddle, Stonewall Jackson and the Seven Days. Mm. And he figured out that in the, in the week prior, the three or four days prior to the opening of the seven days on June 25th, there were two days, two nights where Jackson didn't get a single wink of sleep. Mm. And during the campaign, he averaged two to three hours of sleep a night. Mm. So he is physically exhausted. And there's that famous story uh, you and some of your listeners may be familiar with, where during the Battle of Glendale, they're skirmishing and with the Federals. There's an opportunity to cross, cross uh, White Oak Swamp. And staff officer comes and finds McClellan dead asleep. And McClellan, or excuse me, Jackson, and and tries to wake Jackson and says, "Sir, wake up." And uh, huh? is Jackson's response, and then he just kind of waves him away and goes, eh, and falls back asleep. So you know, Jackson is physically incapacitated. This is a very real problem because you, sh you we should remember that the Army of the Valley, um, Jackson has already court-martialed or is has charges and is about to try the commander of the Stonewall Brigade for the Battle of Kernstown when he withdrew on his own initiative in Mar during a battle in March of 1863 in the Valley. And so Jackson is already court-martialing the commander of the unit that he commanded at First Manassas. What do you think that means for all the commanders in the Army of the Valley? Are they gonna exercise any initiative, step up, mm -hmm. especially if Jackson's incapacitated? Well, I tell my tours, I said, the thing you need to remember is that court-martial has set the tone and as Jackson goes, so does the Army of the Valley. Yeah, I mean, one thing about Jackson, he could have very prickly relations with his subordinates. I mean, it was never exactly a loving relationship like with A.P. Hill or Yule 
for his other subordinates. I, I mean, that's one aspect about Stonewall. He was not exactly a lovable figure when you th when you kind of contemplate it. I mean, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Um, actually, on his way to Maryland, we figured out during on the way to the Maryland campaign, Jackson had three divisions under his command. At one point, all three division commanders were under arrest for something. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah. Stonewall Jackson may be a tech, good tactician and a good operator, but in terms of managing personnel, he's he's got his own um, he's got his own problems. Let's put it that way. Let's go. What, a very a key figure for the Union Army in the Potomac was Union Corps Commander Fitz John Porter. In your opinion, do you believe he was the unsung hero of the Army of the Potomac during the Seven Days Battle? So, was he, the, in your opinion, that? Actually, I would say that um, if you look at the Seven Days, um, which, by the way, by 20th century standards would be considered one battle. Um, Day one, day two are pretty much all Porter with some reinforcements, particularly on day two. In other words, Mechanicsville and Gaines's Mill on the 25th, 26th, 27th. And then um, again, Malvern Hill, the defense of Malvern Hill, which is the climactic battle on July 1st, 1862. That's all Fitz John Porter. And he actually is the one who reports to McClellan, we have driven off the Confederates and you know, we will attack if ordered. And of course, McClellan chooses not to counterattack the Confederates at that point. But Porter, I mean, if you really look at, at his performance and the performance of his troops, you know, they fight against about 60% of the Confederates uh, at, at Mechanicsville. And then the next day at Gaines's Mill, um, it's the bloodiest battle in American military history up to that time. Um, Shiloh having just lost the title after 10 weeks. And it still takes the largest Confederate assault of the war to knock Porter out of that position. And even under cover of darkness, he's able to pull his men back across the river and have them, in case something happens, have them ready to go the next morning. And then Malvern Hill, the defense of Malvern Hill, the organization, the artillery, and just the, the federal conduct of that battle. Um, Porter, which is ironic considering his fate with court-martial and other things later in the year, uh, this actually, the yeah, Porter does a very, very fine job, and he's, yeah. he's, he deserves more credit. Is it accurate to say, basically, was that the Fifth Corps? Was he Fifth Corps commander? The Fifth Corps. Yes. Yeah. Is it accurate to say the Fifth Corps basically was acting as a fire brigade? You know, they, as you use a colloquial term to save the day for the Army of the Potomac, they were doing fire brigade duty. I would say that to an extent, especially later in the campaign. At the beginning. Uh, McClellan has put has left put most of his army to the south of the Chickahominy River. They are the uh, the flank guard to the north. They're the ones that are kind of if I've got to leave one corps on on its own, I'm gonna you know McClellan trusts Porter and the Fifth Corps to kind of be on its own on the north side of the Chickahominy. So yeah, it's it they play a they wear a bunch of different hats. That unit wears a bunch of different hats, uh, but but does the job. We now deal with the last days, the last day of the seven days battles, Malvern Hill. I, Chris, I always had this personal observation. I always thought basically Malvern Hill was Pickett's charge one year before Pickett's charge actually took place. I mean, when you look at the two, you have a doomed frontal assault on an extremely well dug in enemy occupying the high ground with infantry and artillery in depth. 
I mean, is it accurate to say that Malvern Hill was Pickett's charge one year before Pickett's charge actually took place, in your opinion? I think the parallels are striking. And it, it, no less a figure than Douglas Southall Freeman in Lee's Lieutenants, when he talked about Gettysburg, talked about how the Army slipped back a year and how it was not the Army of Chancellorsville, it was the Army of Malvern Hill mm. that ended up attacking on July 2 and July 3 at Gettysburg. So I, th I think there's something to it. Um, particularly when you look at uh, this, you know, the, the, the tactical similarities, um, some of the same personalities are involved. Lewis Armistead, of course, plays a major role in both operations. Um, it's a, uh, you know, Confederate artillery has problems. Federal artillery has a fantastic, you know, anchors the defense and has a fantastic day. Um, you know, you, you can say, yeah, Pickett's, the, the, the preview, if you will, of Pickett's charge is Malvern Hill. If McClellan had, now you talked about earlier that Fitzjohn Porter said, I'm ready to, after Malvern Hill, he said, I'm ready to attack. If McClellan had boldly counterattacked after Malvern Hill or, or, or any of the other previous battles, do you believe he could have taken Richmond in your analysis? There was an opportunity to do that. There was an opportunity and I, Lee's army, let's put it this way. There were several times during the seven days, even, even early into the seven days where Lee had concentrated most of his army against Porter, where McClellan had he been more aggressive and fought his troops with more aggression could have been rewarded. And particularly, you know, Malvern Hill, he's now got McClellan's now changed his base. He's got a secure base on the James river. He's in touch with the federal Navy, which could support an operation in the Richmond. He's just given Lee's army a very bloody nose. And there's a, you know, a counterattack. You know, you can't predict it with certainty, but there's an opportunity missed mm. for sure. Chris, tell me if this is true or not. I think one, one of my Civil War books, I, I don't know if I'm reading this correctly. I got the impression that during the Peninsula Campaign, McClellan contemplated sending a column south of the James River to take Petersburg, but he was denied permission by either Stanton or Halleck. When you were doing your research, did you ever come across such an idea by McClellan, or did I misread the city, or am I misreading something? No, you're right. You're right. That isn't that is in the papers. Um, there was consideration of going down to Petersburg, uh, but the, it was the War Department. Henry Halleck wasn't general in chief yet, so it was actually Stanton and Lincoln and the War Department that overruled McClellan. Um, one of the underutilized resources of the campaign, which 1864 shows us, was the James River. Mm. The Union Navy controlled it up to Drury's Bluff and tried to get through Drury's Bluff in May of 1862. The Navy asked for some reinforcements from McClellan to take the batteries. McClellan never detached those reinforcements. Mm. So not going to Petersburg, not taking Drury's Bluff, and then advancing with the Navy right up to James, those are missed opportunities. And those were opportunities that could also have been seized immediately after Malvern Hill, too. But obviously, the time for any aggression and dash in McClellan was was long gone by that point. Chris, what led you to write about the Seven Days Battles? What drew you to it? There's so many battles here, but what was it about that specific sequence of battles that drew you to it? The Army, um, back in 2010, was doing a, a series on the 150th, for the 150th, on the various campaigns of the Civil War. Mm. And I had put in for a couple of different options, including this one, having given tours of these battles, 
finding them very interesting stories. And this was the volume they assigned me was to do the Peninsula Seven. It covers the Peninsula Seven Days. It covers uh, Jackson Valley Campaign of 1862, and then all the way through Second Manassas and Chantilly. Um, and it was a really it, it, the the thing that was really interesting about it. Two things. The first was they wanted me to consider it primarily from the federal perspective which is something that when a lot of a lot of histories of these campaigns tend to look at it primarily from the Confederate perspective. Mm. But from the federal perspective, it's there's there's a lot going on in Virginia. And so I got a chance to really explore that. The other thing is, you know, as you know, the Army never wrote an official history of the Civil War like it did for World War Two or beyond. Wow. So in effect, this has been this is the official history volume short as it is. It is the official history volume on these campaigns. Chris, please tell our listeners, where can they find this book? You can find it on Amazon or any of the online retailers. Um, it's also available through the uh, U.S. Army Center of Military History, uh, which is history.army.mil. Chris, please tell our listeners, what what is your next book project and when can we expect its release? I'm working on um, editing the by the 1944-45 Diaries of Simon Bolivar Buckner Jr., whose dad was the Confederate General Simon Bolivar Buckner. Um, that is called 10th Army Commander, and Casemate is going to be doing that. Um, should be out hopefully this time two years from now, 2024. Well, I can't wait to see it, and uh, I can't wait to interview, have you on my show again. We can talk about that, okay, Chris? Hey, that sounds great. Please take care, and you be safe, okay? Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing author and military historian Michael Stroud. Thank you, and good night.